save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. If you were to ask a dozen different biologists what the most dangerous animal on Earth is, you'd likely receive a dozen different answers. There are, of course, a few creatures more likely to top that list than others. There's the mosquito, which kills, on average, more than a million people each year through the spread of disease. Then there's man. I don't think I have to go into too much detail about how deadly and destructive people can be. But every so often, a story comes along from history that demonstrates that as destructive as humans can be, there are other creatures in the animal kingdom that manage to prove we're not always at the top of the food chain. In 1896, the British decided to build a grand railroad that would span the distance across their colony in East Africa. The plan was that the tracks would run all the way from the coastal port city of Mombasa and from there onto Lake Victoria and then onto Uganda. Although the rail line would officially be named the Uganda Railroad, critics often referred to it as the Lunatic Line, since it was widely believed it would run from nowhere to nowhere. The British colonialists hoped the train would aid trade routes between Africa and Europe, as well as encourage colonists to move to Central Africa. In the end, the railroad would traverse about 580 miles, crossing numerous rivers and valleys, and take over 30 years to complete. Thousands of laborers known as coolies were brought in from India to work on the rail line. By February 1898, the railroad line had reached the Savo River in Kenya, 130 miles northwest of Mombasa. There they built a temporary bridge to cross the river, but they needed someone to build a permanent structure in order for them to move on to the next length of the rail line. In March of that year, a British Army colonel named John Henry Patterson was brought in to oversee construction of the bridge. It was difficult, back-breaking work. By day, the Indian workers sweltered under the hot African sun. Although most of the workers hailed from India and were used to working in the heat, they still often found themselves woefully unprepared for working in the Savo. The air was always dry, the sweat on your skin crystallizing the moment it rose to the surface. Where they were working, there was precious little shade to be had. The trees and brush here were gnarled things, coated with sharp thorns, and offered little comfort from the sun. The work could be dangerous. They were building across a major river, after all. And accidents occasionally happened. But risk was part of the job, and the railroad wasn't going to build itself. But despite the heat and the risks involved with construction... It turns out the nights were far more dangerous. For during the still of the night, something emerged like smoke from the darkness and began to make the workmen disappear. At first, Colonel Patterson didn't believe the rumors he was hearing from his workers. It was just superstitious nonsense. More likely, the men who vanished left of their own accord. 
It wasn't until he'd been on the job for a few weeks when something happened that made him change his mind. It was on that night that one of Patterson's Jemadars, an Indian Army officer named Ungin Singh, settled into his tent for a much-needed rest after a long day's work. Singh shared the tent with a dozen other workmen. As their breathing slowed and sleep overtook them, something poked its head through the tent flaps and crept silently inside. The creature seized Ungan Singh by the throat and dragged him kicking out of the tent and into the dark. The man tried to scream, but the creature had its teeth buried in his throat. The other men did the screaming for him. This time, when Patterson's men came to him insisting that a monster was stalking the camp, he listened. Some of the men described the creature as a demon straight out of hell. But Patterson was a rational man, and he knew what the creature really was. Not a devil, but a flesh-and-blood creature from the African wild. And it turns out it wasn't alone. For several months, a pair of African lions stalked the men of the Savo rail line. A pair of lions that developed a taste for human flesh. The rest of the story has become the stuff of legend. I'm Nate Hale, currently trying to teach a warthog and a meerkat how to sing Disney songs. And this is The Conspirators. John Henry Patterson was born in Ireland in 1867 to a Protestant father and a Roman Catholic mother. He joined the British Army at age 17 and eventually earned the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He served in World War I, and along with his Protestant upbringings, he became a fierce Zionist. At one point, he actually became commander of the Zion Mule Corps, which has been described by some historians as the first Jewish fighting force in two millennia. Although Patterson led a distinguished military career, it's the events that occurred in Savo that really made him famous. Perhaps Patterson and his men should have known from the beginning that the Savo was no place to build their railroad. The very name Savo actually means place of slaughter, although that actually refers to the local Maasai warriors who had a deadly reputation for taking no prisoners. Nonetheless, it was a bad omen from the start. After his Jemadar was dragged from the tent, Patterson and a group of men set out the next morning to follow the bloody trail the lion had left. What they found stunned them all. They discovered the remains of several men, many of whom had been reported missing in the weeks prior. They collected as many of the remains as they could find, then brought them back to camp and buried them beneath heaps of stones. Patterson was an experienced hunter, but up until that point, he had never encountered a lion before. That night, he sat with his rifle up in a tree close to the Jemadar's tent, hoping the lion would return for another victim. Word had spread quickly throughout the camp about what had happened. And that night, most of the workmen chose to keep their tents tightly closed. It didn't help. During his vigil that evening, Patterson heard a distant cry coming from about a half mile away. One of the lions had managed to sneak inside a tent close to the railhead camp where he found another victim. The next night, Patterson relocated to a new position in a tree closer to that man's tent. They tied up a goat under the tree Patterson was in, 
but once again, the lions eluded him. And sometime in the pre-dawn hours, another blood-curdling scream shattered the still night air. The lions had dragged off yet another victim. By the time April came around, Patterson had learned a great deal about these elusive lions. By this point in time, he estimated the big cats had killed at least 18 of his men. He believed their hunting grounds spanned approximately 8 miles, based on the wide range from which his men kept getting dragged off and eaten. He preferred to stake himself out each night in different areas, hoping to catch the lions in the act. Hunting them by day he considered to be a foolish act. With the dense brush all around, it would be far too easy for the hunter to become the prey of the very creatures he was hunting. Nonetheless, as the death toll mounted, an increasingly desperate Patterson did venture out into the brush more than once. But these lions were surprisingly clever, and they managed to elude him at every turn. He would occasionally locate their trail, only to lose it when they moved onto rocky terrain, almost as if they knew they wouldn't leave tracks there. Although the lions proved to be highly effective killers, they weren't always successful in their attacks. On one occasion, an Indian trader known as a Banaya was riding his donkey late one night through the area, when one of the lions sprang out at him. It knocked over both the man and his ride. The donkey was badly wounded, and the man surely would have followed suit except the lion managed to get himself tangled up with a rope and a pair of empty oil tins that had been strung around the donkey's neck. The resulting clatter startled the lion and caused it to run off into the night. On another occasion, one of the lions managed to sneak inside the tent of a Greek contractor. But instead of dragging the man to his death, the lion got hold of the man's mattress by mistake and dragged that out into the dark. Patterson and his men did everything they could think of to secure the perimeter around the camp. The Indian workers built thick fencing called boma out of the thorny branches of acacia trees and burned campfires all night. But no matter what they did, somehow the lions managed to keep getting in. It's for this reason that the workers began referring to the two lions as the ghost and the darkness. Many of the men became convinced that these lions were no earthly creatures, but rather some sort of evil spirits sent to wreak havoc on Earth. Eventually, progress on the railroad had taken the camp roughly 40 miles away from Savo, but the work had also slowed considerably. Dozens of workers fled in fear. By then, only a few hundred coolies remained. Yet still the lions continued to stalk them. One night, one of the lions dragged a patient out of the hospital tent and ate him. Patterson moved the hospital tent, yet the very next night, one of the lions returned and dragged the water carrier out. They found his severed head and his hands the following morning. Once again, Patterson had no choice but to move the hospital tent. This time he set up a railroad car nearby with some cattle inside. Patterson sat up all night with his rifle, hoping the lions would reappear. And one of them did. The lion got into the rail car and took down one of the cows, but it couldn't figure out how to drag its kill out through the boma fencing. It was the first time Patterson got to see one of the lions in person. It was an enormous male, around 10 feet long from nose to tail. Savo lions were maneless. Most biologists believe they developed this trait because of the excessive heat during the day would make it unbearable for a lion with a mane to function. 
The lion released the cow and turned its eye to a new potential victim when it got a look at Patterson. The lion charged at Patterson. The lieutenant colonel managed to get off a shot that passed through the mouth and shattered one of the lion's massive canine teeth. The lion fled and neither of the big cats was seen again for a few weeks. In the meantime, Patterson built a trap inside the railroad car that would drop metal bars around anything that entered. He turned himself into bait by spending the night inside the rail car, hoping the lions would return. But the trap failed, and a few weeks later, once again, both lions managed to sneak in through the boma and dragged another construction worker out to his death. Witnesses claimed they heard the man's pitiful cries and the crunching of bones just outside the fence. By December 1st, most of the workers had boarded trains and fled the area. Only a handful of men remained now to complete the bridge. Those that stayed spent more time fortifying their sleeping quarters rather than doing the job they were being paid for. Two days later, the local superintendent of police arrived in camp with 20 armed men to help with the hunt. The superintendent had his own close encounter he shared with Patterson. For no sooner had he gotten off the train than he was attacked by one of the lions which had appeared as if out of thin air on the train platform. It ripped his shirt and scratched up his back before it was scared away by one of his soldiers that managed to get off a shot in the lion's direction. That very same night, one of the lions actually did enter Patterson's boxcar trap. But despite several shots being fired at it, the creature managed to escape unharmed. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. On December 9th, one of the lions entered the camp and killed a donkey. As it ate, Patterson instructed one of his men to make a lot of noise to drive the lion out into the open. When it got into the open, Patterson managed to shoot and wound it with a high-powered rifle he'd borrowed from the police superintendent. The lion fled, but Patterson believed the animal would return for its kill. He built himself a simple wooden platform, and from his perch atop it, waited for the lion to return. When it did, he managed to fire two shots from above, killing it instantly. The remaining workers were elated. They called Patterson the Devil Killer. Some of them believe Patterson must have magical powers of his own to have finally killed the creature. For the next 10 days, the other lion wasn't seen. Then on December 29, 1898, the second lion made an unsuccessful attack on a workman sleeping in a tree. Patterson took a perch in the very same tree, and when the lion returned once more, he managed to shoot it a couple of times. They waited until morning, then Patterson and his men followed a trail of blood and paw prints right to the lion. Later in life, he wrote extensively about the time he spent hunting the Savo lions. In a short while, I heard the lion begin to creep stealthily towards me, he wrote. I could barely make out his form as he crouched among the whitish undergrowth. But I saw enough for my purpose. And before he could come any nearer, I took careful aim and pulled the trigger. The sound of the shot was at once followed by a most terrific roar, and then I could hear him leaping about in all directions. 
I was no longer able to see him, however, as his first bound had taken him into the thick bush. But to make assurance doubly sure, I kept a blazing away in the direction in which I heard him plunging about. At length came a series of mighty groans gradually subsiding into deep sighs, and finally ceasing altogether. And I felt convinced that one of the devils who had so long harried us would trouble us no more. Even as the lion bled to death from multiple gunshot wounds, it made a half-hearted attempt to reach Patterson before finally slumping to the ground and laying still. Patterson kept the lion's skulls as a trophy along with their skins, which he turned into rugs. They remained as rugs on the floor of his home for 25 years. In 1924, Patterson visited the Field Museum of Chicago to give a lecture on the man-eaters of Savo. While there, the museum offered him $5,000 for the skins and skulls. He accepted, and that's where they've been on display ever since. Because Patterson only kept so much of the skin for his rugs, the museum had to get creative with how they performed their taxidermy in order to make the lions look right. The lions which you can see on display today are a little smaller than the actual live animals were. In more recent years, scientific analysis of the remains have shown some interesting things about these lions. For starters, genetic testing showed that the animals were brothers. They were both young lions and most likely didn't belong to any pride. People have speculated for years why these particular lions seem to have developed a taste for human flesh. The diets of most other lions typically consisted of wildebeest, zebras, and other large prey. Attacks on humans weren't unheard of in the area, but they were highly unusual. There are a number of theories as to why they turned to eating people. One suggestion was that construction of the Savo River Bridge was taking place during a period of climate change that decimated the lion's regular food sources. A 13-year drought, followed by a pair of epidemics that thinned the herds of grazing animals, might have driven the lions to take drastic action. Another theory involves the physical characteristics of one of the lions. One of the animals had a damaged tooth and dislocated jaw, which some people have suggested may have caused it to go after what it saw as easier prey, us. Although Patterson himself disputed this theory, since he claimed to have shot one of the lions in the mouth early on. Yet another theory suggested that the lions may have acquired a taste for human flesh as they came across corpses that washed up around the Savo River crossing. Slave caravans bound for Zanzibar regularly crossed there, and people were known to often drown or die from disease in that area. Of course, we have to take anything Patterson said about the incident with a grain of salt. In 1907, he published a book that remains the primary source of information on the lion attacks. In the first edition, he set the death toll at 28, but by 1920, he increased the number of deaths to 135 for the book's second edition adding African natives to the overall count. In recent years, anthropologist Nathaniel Domine and ecologist Justin Yeekel of the University of California, Santa Cruz, teamed up to determine once and for all the real body count. Using isotopes found in the lion's hair and bone, they were able to determine much more precisely what was in the animal's diet. This is because isotopes such as carbon-13 and carbon-12 accumulate in an animal's body which can then be used to determine the creature's diet. By comparing the carbon from other animals, such as zebras and wildebeests, the scientists were able to determine that in the last three months of the lion's lives, 
humans made up 30% of their diet. Factoring in the size of an average human, plus the amount of food an adult lion could eat, they were able to determine that the two lions likely ate a combined 35 people. Although the scientists admit that the number may range all the way up to 72, or as few as four. Either way, it's probable that Patterson exaggerated the body count greatly for his book. One of the two lions showed evidence that it ate the majority of the humans with approximately 24 kills. The other stuck primarily to herbivores, with around 11 humans as its prey. Several movies have been made about the incident over the years, including the big-budget 1996 film The Ghost in the Darkness, starring Val Kilmer as Patterson and Michael Douglas as a fictional big-game hunter. The Legend of the Man-Eaters of Savo is probably the most famous series of lion attacks in history, although they're not the most prolific. That honor goes to an entire pride of lions that between 1932 and 1947 managed to kill an estimated 1,500 people in the Najambe district in southern Tanzania. The attacks became so widespread during that time that locals began to blame the attacks on a witch doctor named Matamula Mangera, whom everyone believed to be controlling the pride through black magic. The tragedy finally came to an end when a big game hunter named George Rushby came to the area and killed 15 lions, causing the rest of the pride to disband. From 1907 to 1909, John Patterson returned to East Africa, where he served as a game warden. During this time, a British Army colonel named Audley Blythe died of a mysterious gunshot wound. Some people claimed the man committed suicide, while others claimed the man's wife shot him because she'd been having an affair with Patterson and wanted him out of the way. Although there's no direct proof that Blythe was murdered, it is true that Patterson buried the man in secret and failed to report the death to the nearest army outpost until much later. Ernest Hemingway referenced the incident in his short story The Short Happy Life of Francis Maycomer. Afterwards, Patterson returned to England, where he was dogged by rumors of the alleged affair and murder for the rest of his life. The rumors about him, along with the anti-Semitism he encountered as he continued to fight for the rights of Jewish people, would eventually cause him to leave England and move to the United States. He died in California in 1947. Today, the bridge Patterson built still carries trains across the Savo National Park. The natives call the location Maneaters Junction. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for tuning in every week. I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking next week off for a much-needed break. But I'll be back Monday, April 17th with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out another podcast I highly recommend, you should give a listen to the ENDS podcast. In each episode, host Kevin Allen paints a vivid and moving picture of human tragedy unlike any other. His four-part series on Jim Jones and the Guyana tragedy is particularly riveting. And as for my own show, I encourage you to tell your friends and family about The Conspirators, and to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from my fans. As always, we're available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you come back for more.